We are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. We've been at this for four weeks. This is our fourth week. And I began with a statement that John makes actually at the end of his gospel, but it is a statement that permeates throughout John's gospel, and it is a statement that stands in the background of every teaching that we will listen to from John's gospel, and that is in John twenty thirty one. and I intend to read it each week, that we would get the idea, as John writes, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. All that is written in this Gospel has been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. This morning, we are finishing up with... John's prologue, the first 18 verses, those first 18 verses that give us a complete understanding of all that is going to go on in John's gospel. All of John's theological truths are revealed in this wonderful prologue. And this morning we are going to be starting, we're going to be reading one of the most profound statements in all of the Bible. Not that every, I mean, every passage of the Bible is inspired by God. We, we know that. But when, when you read so-and-so beget so-and-so, it just doesn't grab you the way John 1.14 grabs you. And what an, what an amazing verse this is. And look at John 1.14 with me and read along. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. And from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for the inspiration of Scripture that you breathe life into these words, that as we read these words, life is given to us. Lord, And my prayer this morning is that as we study this passage, as we read these inspired words, that you would breathe new life into us, fresh grace into us, fresh faith into our church. Lord, would you use this passage to meet people this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would help me. You, you know my limitations, but you are a great God. And I put my confidence in you this morning and your inspired word. 
So use your word this morning, Lord, to bless your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So much happens in the first 18 verses of this book. As we read, you could, you could begin in, in 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And you can jump down to 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This, this is a headline with verses to follow. This is a headline that John writes to capture our attention. News, newspaper headlines. A newspaper is, for those of you who are young, a newspaper is a, a piece of paper that opens up and it has stories about what goes on in, in life. Uh, and newspapers are designed with headlines to capture your attention. And, and sometimes they don't quite grab you or they don't quite communicate what they're supposed to. I, I checked online to see kind of the, the, the top headlines of newspapers throughout, throughout history. And here's, here, here's one. Federal agents raid gun shop, find weapons. <laughs> one armed man applauds the kindness of strangers. And then here's my favorite. Homicide victims rarely talk to police. <laughs> Now, John uses this headline to catch our attention. It's not a humorous one, though, but one of profound truth that changed all of history. In John 1, John tells us that in verse 1, the Word was. The Word was. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was was God, referring to Jesus as the eternal God. He has always been God, even before creation. In verse 14, he concludes this commentary on the word was to the word became. He moves from the word was to the word became. The word became flesh. God became flesh in the incarnation. God takes on humanity. The infinite becomes the finite. Eternity enters time. The supernatural becomes natural. The invisible becomes visible. The creator enters creation. That's what John means when he says the word has become flesh. Now to both Jews and Greeks, this declaration of John's is literally earth-shattering news. Because to the Jews, the Word of God, when the Word of God was read, when the Word of God was spoken, that was sacred and holy. And to declare this otherness of the Word of God suddenly becoming flesh, it, it 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 would create this sense of incomprehension. And to the Greeks who would believe the word logos would mean this impersonal force to say it has become flesh, press them beyond their understanding. This is a radical statement. John is using a bold term to describe the incarnation. 
He doesn't say that the Word assumed manhood. He doesn't say that the Word adopted a body. He says that the Word became flesh. To use the word flesh is to describe humanity in its most frail and vulnerable form. I was struggling with a migraine headache yesterday and Marilyn was laying down. She comes in the room and wanting to care for me as my wife always does. She said, listen, I, I've got this stuff called essential oil. It's essential peppermint oil and it's supposed to take away headaches and I want to spread it on your forehead. And I, what do you say at that moment? Okay. And she spreads it on my forehead and immediately... It is like this acid is burning through my brain and my eyes start watering and I'm dying at that moment. And I, and, I, and I got it. I understood what Marilyn did because my eyes were watering and burning and my, my skin was, was, I was, I was like a, a York peppermint patty and <laughs> my skin was burning. I realized I'm so distracted. I'm not thinking about my headache. That's what... That's what flesh is. It's just frail. It's frail. And, and to, to know how many folks among us who are, are sick and suffering, to say that Jesus took on that frailty, that humanity, that vulnerability. Jesus makes our creatureliness his own. He unites himself, he united himself to our nature and became a real man without ceasing to be divine. What a mystery to maintain his divinity, fully God and fully man. And in his human flesh, he felt and he hurt and he bled and he died. Because only flesh dies. In verse 14, John writes, the word, And the Word became flesh. And the Word became flesh. Throughout the Old Testament, God spoke to His people through angels and prophets and priests and words on stone tablets. But Jesus' coming changed it all. Think of the the passage from Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The Word became flesh. Jesus took on all our humanity, save our sin. He did not take on our sin. He took on our humanity to speak to us, and to dwell with us. Now, the word dwelt. Look at, look at this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt literally means to tabernacle among us. To, to the idea of, of Christ in the Old Testament. That, that God in the Old Testament has tabernacled. They, that God pitched his tent among the people of God. And in that tent, God dwelled. 
the glory of God dwelled among the people of God, but in a very specific place, in that tent, in the place called the tabernacle. And this is what John is referring to when he says he dwelt among us. That word dwelt means tabernacle, pitch, pitching our tent. And that's what Jesus has done. That's what John is referring to. Is he's looking at this Old Testament history and he's teaching, saying, look, here's what Jesus has done. He looks back to this tabernacle, which was called the tent of meeting. And the reason it was called the tent of meeting was because when Moses or one of the Levite priests would go in there, they would meet with God. Do you get the idea? Jesus dwelling among us allows us to meet with God. He has tabernacled among us. He has lived among us. He is living among us. It is the place where the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks with a friend. That is the picture that John is painting here. And the Israelites knew that God was dwelling in the tabernacle. They knew that when Moses would go in there and he would come out, you would see this residue of the glory of God shining on him. And John tells us that Jesus shatters the barrier between God and man that existed when, because of sinful men. Understand, when, when, when someone went up to the tabernacle, they would go up to the east side. And the east side, there was one entrance. It's the only entrance into the courtyard. And at that entrance to the courtyard, what was this thing called the brazen altar. And on the brazen altar, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, sacrifices were being burnt upon that altar. They would smell the sacrifices. They would see the blood as they came up to that eastern gate that eastern opening into the courtyard. And what they would see in the sacrifices, the only way someone could enter into the presence of God was through the sacrifice of blood and death. And Jesus, who is now dwelling among us, has made that once and for all sacrifice. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he is tabernacling among us. Hebrews 9 tells us without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There was, what was significant was that no one could approach God except by the means of sacrifice. And Jesus, who is our sacrifice, has made a way for us to come to God. And he did it by coming among us. We didn't go to him. He came to us and dwelled among us. Here's my proposition this morning. In Jesus Christ, God is known to us. In Jesus Christ, God himself has come to us. In Jesus Christ, God is known to us, and in Jesus Christ, God has come to us. What, what did John see 
when he saw Jesus. Think about this. John is writing this account. He's writing this account based on his history of three years walking with the Savior. He's writing this account years later as an older man. And he's remembering. He's remembering. What did he see? What, what did John behold? Well, he writes here what he sees. He says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John's thinking about Jesus in physical form, being with him. But these words are not just intended for John. They're intended for you and I. These were written that those who read these words down through the ages would believe. But John is saying he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only, and that word only means unique, as of the only unique or begotten Son from the Father. We have seen his glory. John saw both Jesus' humanity, but he saw his divinity. He saw the glory of God. It is And it is his divine nature that John is actually calling us to in this verse. He he makes it clear that Jesus is human, fully human, fully man, fully flesh. But the accent is also on being fully God. His divine nature is what we see. John beheld the glory of God. And in that glory, he saw grace and truth. But first and foremost, he saw glory. He saw God revealed in Jesus. It seems in verse 14 that John is directing his readers, you and me, to Exodus 33 and 34. There where Moses is before God and he's begging God. He says to God, please show me your glory. And so God says he will, and, and this is how he does it. The Lord replies this way. Here's, here's what my glory is going to look like to you, Moses. I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And here's what my glory looks like. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The glory of God revealed to Moses is goodness, mercy, and compassion. The Lord comes down and he he shows Moses his glory in these ways. And John John has that in the background as he says, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. And in John's mind, he describes this, this goodness, this compassion, this mercy in this way, full of grace and truth. Moses saw goodness and mercy and compassion. Jesus is showing you grace and truth. That's what you see when you meet the Savior. 
In Exodus 34, the Lord comes down from the cloud and he stands with Moses and he proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's who the Lord's glory, that's who the Lord's glory is. In the Hebrew, the words, when you say love and faithfulness, are the Hebrew words hesed and met. In, and, and that word hesed is in, uh, is in lamentations. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. The word hesed is, is that description of the, the love and, and faithfulness of God. And it appears again and again in the Old Testament. And John, rather than using that, he uses grace and truth. He introduces this new idea of grace and truth. And what's interesting is that after this, you won't see the word grace used throughout the rest of John's gospel. But he makes it clear here that in in Jesus Christ, dwelling in the flesh, the Word becoming flesh, the glory of God is revealed. And that glory, in that glory, is grace and truth. D.A. Carson said, The glory revealed to Moses when the Lord passed in front of him displayed grace and truth and was the very same glory John and his friends saw in the Word made flesh. What Moses saw is what John saw. But, this is a very sad statement. In verse 10, earlier John writes, speaking of Jesus, He was in the world and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. Think about that. The Word has become flesh. The Word is dwelling among us. The Word has tabernacled. Jesus has pitched His tent. He he lives among us. And the world does not know Him. It's kind of... You don't recognize that? I know what that's like. I was was at a together-for-the-gospel conference and... I was heading from my room to the conference and I got on the elevator and there was, it had stopped and there was just one older man on the elevator and I said hi and asked him how he liked the conference and how he was doing, you know, and we go down, we go down about five more floors because we were on the 10th, I started on the 10th floor, we go down about five or six more floors, the elevator stops and CJ gets on and CJ looks at this older man and goes, John, how are you doing? It was John MacArthur. I had no idea who it was. I'm just checking him out, you know, it's like I didn't know him. And I'm just sitting there thinking, I have no idea who this, I didn't know who this, I'm so sorry, John MacArthur. And he was, this, he was speaking that night, and I'm sitting there, how do you like the conference? You having a good time? <laughs> Me and Beyonce, we know each other. <laughs> the glory of God stands among people in human flesh, and they don't know him. And not only do they not know him, John says in verse 11, they do not receive him. They reject him. But John beheld the glory of God, and what he saw was grace and truth. And those are my two main points this morning. 
what John, John saw the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and John saw the truth of God in Jesus Christ. Let's look at the first part. He saw the grace of God. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then he goes on in verse 15 to say that John bore witness about Him and cried out, this was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. There's this parenthetical statement here. It, I mean, it really could read, and it should read without the parenthetical, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, and from His fullness you have received. But John drops this parenthetical statement in there. He once again introduces a man into the equation, as he did earlier in his in his prologue. And, and as you see, as we start, when we study verse 19 in a few weeks, you'll see John the Baptist entering again into the equation here. What I think is, is very helpful is what John does is he keeps us, he keeps us anchored in humanity. That John the Baptist, the Baptist, this witness, this man, he's there and he, he's He's making witness about who Jesus is. And he ties it back to, it's not just this heavenly treatise on Jesus becoming flesh. But there's a guy in here in the middle of it. And, and, and John is even once again testifying to Jesus' divinity. He says, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. In the beginning was the Word. He was in the beginning with him. So he's, he's once again, he's saying that Jesus has become flesh. Jesus is dwelling among us. He is filled with grace and truth. We have seen his glory, and he is the eternal God. And don't lose sight of his eternity. Don't lose sight of his godliness, his divinity. Yes, he is flesh. But what you read about, and this is what John is after in this section of Scripture, what you read from now on, starting in verse 19 to the very end of the book, is all about his becoming flesh and what that means and his remaining God at the same time. Everything else in the book explains that, demonstrates that, glorifies that, everything else afterwards. From verse 19 through 1250, chapter 12, verse 50, that is known as the book of signs. All of the the signs that Jesus did. Now, he did other signs after that, but primarily in that section, it is about the book of signs. We'll read it and we'll study about the wedding at at, at Cana and, and so on. And then after that, it is known as the book of glory. Jesus' last week of life and his crucifixion and his resurrection. But here, John is setting it up for you. He's preparing you to start reading in verse 19. Here is God who is human and he is God. And don't lose sight of that. And and in his godliness, in his nature, what, what Jesus is all about, he is 
John saw the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The, the grace John speaks of is the very grace that Paul declares to us in Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved. It is the grace that saves us. To say that Jesus is full of grace doesn't really capture the reality of what grace is. That word, that word full is, there's so much more behind it. And Jesus is filled with grace. And then in verse 16, John picks up where he ends in verse 14, and he says that it's from this fullness we have all received, grace upon grace. Now, although theologically true, this verse doesn't primarily speak about this a, a well of unending grace. That's not what John means here when he says grace upon grace. Although that is theologically true and you can, you can derive that in principle from that passage. But what that, when he says grace upon, actually in the Greek it literally means grace instead of grace. And what he is referring to because you can find in other passages like Ephesians 2, the immeasurable riches of God's grace in regards to our salvation and eventually our sanctification. But here he's talking about grace instead of grace. And in some sense, what he, and, and you have to connect verse 16 with 17. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what Paul is saying, or what John is saying here, grace upon grace, he's saying in one extent, the, the law was a lesser grace. And when Jesus came, the greater grace came. Because the law, although it is the law, and we do not derive grace from the law, there was a grace that came with the law because without the law, you would have not known you were a sinner. Without the law, you would have not known your need for a Savior. Without the law, we would not know what God's righteous commands are. And that is grace to us. Think about the common grace our laws bring to our society. Without laws, there would be anarchy. And so... John is saying grace upon grace. There was this, the law was given, but something greater and fresher has come. And it is the grace we see in Jesus Christ. In Jesus Christ, grace is revealed in the most glorious way. That, and and it, is, it, is re, it is revealed in his not only his love and his compassion and his healing power, it is revealed in the cross. It is revealed in Jesus dying for sinful people who did not know him and recognize him and in fact did not receive him. That is grace. Everyone in this room at some point rejected and rebelled against the Savior. You were born with a sinful nature. You did not receive him. You were not enlightened. You were darkness. And grace comes. Grace upon grace. The law told you what your problem was. Jesus comes and tells you what the solution is. Grace has come. 
John saw the grace of God in Jesus Christ, but John also saw the truth of God in Jesus Christ. Throughout John's gospel, the word truth appears 24 times. In John 14, 6, Jesus declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And apart from truth, we'll never know the true meaning of life. Apart from truth in Jesus Christ, we won't know what real life is because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, the world is always assaulting truth. That's the world we live in today. To many, truth is relative. It is what people want it to be. To them, truth has no absolutes. What's true for me doesn't have to be true for you. Which, in reality, makes it no truth at all. To say Jesus is the truth is offensive to many. To say that Jesus' truth is absolute is offensive to many. But what they don't understand is that what is genuinely true, genuinely true, has to be true for everybody. And Jesus says that he is the truth. We do have absolute truth. We have absolute truth. We have it in Christ. And we have it in God's word. Our Bible is inerrant. It's infallible. It's all-sufficient. It is authoritative. And by its words, we can fully come to know Christ. Truth stands before us. And Jesus said, the truth will set us free. He says that later on in John. This truth tells us who we are in relation to God. It tells us who God is. And it reveals to us that the Word has become flesh so that He might die for our sins, that we might be reconciled to God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And there's the, the first time John mentions the name of Jesus. He calls them, he calls them the Word. And then he calls him Jesus Christ. And then he ends with this. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. That, the summary of, of John's prologue is Moses never saw God's face. No one has ever seen God's face. If he had, it would have destroyed him. Isaiah, when he saw a vision of the Lord on the throne, he didn't see God face to face. When he saw a vision of the Lord on the throne, he said, I am ruined. No one, John writes, has seen God. Not in the literal sense, because holiness can never tolerate wickedness. But in verse 18, John makes this wonderful summary statement. The only 
the only, the unique God, the Son, the one who has become flesh, the Word who has become flesh, the eternal one who was at creation, who was the creator, he has come among us. He has tabernacled among us. The only God, that one who is at the Father's side. And that, that idea of the Father's side is this little sense of in the bosom of the Father, the intimacy. That is the intimacy of the Trinity. Here is this, again, sense of the Trinity. That, that one has made him known. He has made him known. God is known through Jesus Christ. Jesus, later on in John, says, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He says in John, I and the Father are one. He has made him known. The beloved Son, the incarnate Word, Himself God, while being at the Father's side, has come to earth that He might make the Father known. No longer do we have to be children of wrath. We can be children of God. So what is our takeaway? You know, in, 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 in much expositional preaching, you do find imperatives. Theologians use the word imperatives, commands, things that you are to do. But there are times when a passage just gives you indicatives, what God has done for you. And this is one of those passages. There's no takeaway, go and do this this morning. Let me tell you what this passage is your takeaway. Number one is this, you can know God because Jesus has made him knowable. You can know God because Jesus has made him noble. He has come and he has dwelled among us. And he is still dwelling among us. God's tabernacle of Jesus Christ has never left. You can know God because he is knowable. Secondly, the immeasurable riches of grace, of God's grace, are yours in Christ. The immeasurable riches of grace are are yours in Christ. You can know God because Jesus has made him knowable. The immeasurable riches of grace are yours in Christ. And finally, Jesus dwells with you and he dwells with you by his spirit. God is with you now if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior. He is with you. And what John is telling us, never doubt his presence. He has tabernacled among us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for tabernacling among us, for pitching your tent, for dwelling among us and remaining with us. You are Emmanuel. And Lord, in dwelling with us, you extend your grace to us. Thank you for that. Now, as each person goes home today, Lord, may they feel a, 
just a fresh faith in knowing you and drawing close to you. In Jesus' name, amen.